Holly and Don, can you see this image? I can. See a, I see a bald Mark Davis. It's definitely an upgrade. That is correct. That like Miami the... Vice Mark Davis. Yeah. <laughs> this is like my this is Dune Mark Davis. He looks <laughs> like a character from Dune. And I appreciate that because this is the fulfillment of the Vegas prophecy. He's now gone from being the wacky Bay Area hairdo Mark Davis to being kind of a junior Harkonnen, a Freeman of sorts there out on the desert. You're looking at the owner of the Las Vegas Raiders, formerly the Oakland and Los Angeles Raiders, and an unlikely hero for the story I wanted to tell. The entire purpose of this secret podcast is to, one, bring on Don Van Natta, who wrote uh, half of the story that is the basis for much of what we're going to talk about today, and that is the tale of how the Raiders not only went to Las Vegas, but how this man, who I assure you, when we show you the old haircut, if you're not familiar with it, it will only drive the caricature home further and more powerfully as to what an underdog he is in the negotiation and the battle we will detail for you. Don, thanks for coming on. My pleasure, Spencer. Good to see you today. Yeah, good to see you. Um, we also have Holly Anderson on the call Holly, um, hey, Holly, what do you know about the Raiders, Holly? Just generally speaking, globally speaking. This is part of why I was so interested in doing this story first, just personally. I did not grow up around the NFL. You know, I'm from Tennessee. The Titans were not in Nashville until uh, I was, I think, a teenager. Um, and I grew up where I grew up. It was college sports only and the Braves and the Reds on Superstation. So uh, most of NFL lore is a uh, black hole to me, which is to say um, my impression of the Raiders, uh, especially at this time growing up is fighty and that's it. Yeah. Yeah. The, the, the just win baby, the perpetual renegades of the NFL forever at war with the league, occasionally themselves and their own draft picks, often their own draft picks. If we're to be honest about the recent 25 years of their history or so. But this is not, this is, I'm going to play fake here in a football sense because this happened this week. And I wanted us all to appreciate Mark Davis evolving, the continued evolution of Mark Davis. We're going to talk a little bit more about him, but I'm going to play fake you because this is not the monster in the story. This is not the big baddie. This is not the thing you should be scared of. This, this is the guy who should have won because all he did for the most part was when this is Sheldon Adelson. And if you can see Sheldon, Sheldon's just oozing business here, right? He's got a couple of frowning gondoliers behind him. That is not Venice. In case I needed to tell you that, that is, that is the Venetian in Las Vegas and Sheldon, Sheldon built the Venetian. So let's put you in that income bracket instantly and say, look, this is the man who built the Venetian. This is the man who owns Owned uh, up until his death, built the Sands Macau. So it's not just, we're not talking just casino money. We're talking international gaming conglomerate money, Chinese casino money. That is what we're talking about in terms of push power, matching tie and uh, pocket handkerchief here, right? Like he's got, this is the kind of dough we're talking about. Uh, Sheldon Adelson. Never owned an NFL team, but he's super important to the story. And he's one of the reasons that I think it's so funny that 
the Raiders ended up in Las Vegas because they ended up in Las Vegas without this man really getting a taste of the franchise for a lot of different reasons. But first, let's talk a little bit about who you're looking at here. Uh, Sheldon Adelson was uh, born in Boston, working class. Dad was a cab driver. His mom ran a knitting business. And this is somebody who was a compulsive entrepreneur, right? Don, do you re- do you remember his first business, his first like business that got off the ground? No, I actually don't know what that is. He ran like a de-icing business. Like this was <laughs> like for, for cars. That was, you know, he sold this like de-icer, um, which shows you where he goes. You go, well, how do you get from casino to de-icing? By starting businesses every 10 minutes, which is what Sheldon Adelson did. A compulsive entrepreneur who finally hit on something called Comdex. If you're an electronics person, if you're like a Verge or a Wired reader, you kind of might, a bell might be going off for you. Comdex was the big computer convention before CES. Comdex was when people who all looked like Bill Gates and who didn't really work with a computer that wasn't less than 30 pounds. That's what Comdex really showcased and focused on. This is the dude who ran it. And Comdex took off. And gradually, Sheldon Adelson began to figure out, you know what really works? Running a convention and owning the convention center. So Sheldon Adelson, who was a taskmaster, by the way, um, once, according to a 2008 New Yorker profile, uh, one of his underlings, his subordinates, taped Adelson when he was just issuing orders. This should tell you something about the level of detail and the martial air of somebody when you are taping them so that you get the orders right. That is who Sheldon Adelson is. About a month later, reading straight from the article here, Sheldon came back and said, you guys have done this all wrong. You didn't follow my directions. One of the men in the room, Chudnovsky, recalled, Alan Rice said, stop for a second, Shell. I'm going to play a tape of the meeting for you. And Sheldon Adelson said the following. What are you guys, crazy? Who are you going to believe, me or the tape? <laughs> that's that's who we're talking about here, okay? Um, he sold Comdex. He actually, at one point, to show you um, how things worked, he bought back stock from his own kids, and then two of, two of whom sued him and accused him of underpaying for the fair market value of those shares, all right? He takes the sale of Comdex, in 1988, and he flips it. And for $110 million, which sounds like a lot of money, but is not when we get to this level. And he bought the Sands. All right. Don, we're talking the Sands. We're talking Rat Pack. We're talking Sinatra, right? We're talking uh, Eddie Fisher. Classic casino, correct? Yes. Classic casino. And, um, and he brought it into the modern era because, as you said earlier, he combined the convention center business with the Las Vegas Sands. And in many ways, the convention center uh, part of the business was as important or more important to Sheldon Adelson than the casino business. Mm -hmm. Correct. Because casino business, there's a couple of externalities that you really have to worry about. People don't feel like they can blow money. They're not going to blow as much money. Conventions, though, conventions rely on corporate traffic. And all of the secondary spending that occurs with that, a much more steady and even flow of business that's not quite as susceptible to the jolts and shocks that a large capitalist economy has, right? Yeah, it's it's more of a sure thing in Vegas. If there's any sure thing in Vegas, Sheldon Adelson discovered it's a convention business because of that corporate money, exactly. 
Yes. Now I want everybody to just in your head, earmark that this man really appreciates convention business and understands that it's a steady flow of income. All right. How do, what do empires and changes of regime hinge on really caring about the convention business? Okay. So if you want to know how the Raiders get to Las Vegas, I want you to know in advance convention centers are very important to the story and one man's enormous sense of self-involvement. All right. One enormous sense of business competitiveness. This is this is all tied up in this man who you can see is looking pretty swanky. Just built just built the Venetian. Super happy about it. Okay. He turns the sands, which at this point is kind of shoddy, uh, into the Sands Convention Center. This is Comdex. If you can see, you can see this is where all the sexy people are. Look at that. What about that? Doesn't say danger and sex <laughs> that Mike then the 1991 Microsoft logo. Um, this is the Sands, which if you can see, this is quite a lineup. Danny Thomas, Louis Prima playing that night. I'm going to skip the Copa room and go straight to Louis Prima, to be honest. Agree with that for sure. Yeah, definitely. Louis Prima should be the big, the biggest letter should be Louis Prima on that, on that uh, sign. Yeah. You'll appreciate, by the way, you see the Sands font up there. If you're a font head like me, um, they will use that later up in two and through the construction of the Sands Macau, which looks pretty spanking. We'll see that later on. Also, shouts out to that shade of yellow. That shade of yellow brown no longer exists in nature or in labs. Just nobody makes things that look like that anymore. So shouts out to the Sands for being the last building that looked like that. I think Bob um, Ross would call that an ochre of some type. <laughs> it is. Right? I, I think that, yeah, I think that is an ochre. Um, that's, an, that's a very autumn Bob Ross shade. I want to continue the color talk because I find Sheldon Adelson to just be uh, like a fascinating Ahab kind of figure here. You see this blue here on the canals in the Venetian. That blue, they had to repaint the bottom of that to get the exact shade of blue that Sheldon Adelson wanted for the water in the Venetian at every point. So when I say Taskmaster, it's repaint my fake canals in the middle of a desert kind of Taskmaster. And you can see, look at that. Sans logo carrying it through along with uh, whew, a tremendous amount of neon. That is the Sans Macau that Sheldon Adelson will later own. Adelson was not afraid to throw his weight around, period. And if you want to know uh, what an NFL franchise would mean and the scale of things for Sheldon Adelson's uh eye of Sauron-like concern for something that interested him. Well, um, this is the dude who is uh, in large part responsible for moving the American embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem in Israel. He may have also personally intervened with Tom DeLay to get an anti-Beijing Olympics bill that would kill the bid for the Olympics. He donated over $100 million to the GOP in the 2018 election cycle alone and heavily bank bankrolled Trump because he wanted something. He was quoted as saying, I don't approve of money influencing politics, especially big money, but as long as I can, I will. That was Sheldon Adelson's approach to politics. So in addition to that, also purchased a couple of newspapers in Israel to push his agendas and also purchase the Las Vegas Review Journal, where uh, the journal got strangely mum or slightly flattering whenever Adelson's business interest came up. This was something that Adelson just did. 
because he liked to throw his weight around and he didn't like to read bad things about him so much so that he once sued a Wall Street Journal reporter who called him foul-mouthed and won a suit filed against the Daily Mail accusing him of cutthroat business practices in 2008. This man, at the time of his death, was worth around $35 billion. There are two men in this image. One of them is actually wealthy, and it's the dude on the (laughs) left, the guy who was, among other things, very concerned with the gaming industry, uh, where an embassy was going to go in Israel, and a convention center and the convention business. A little more background for us. This is an image. Uh, One of them is very near and dear to my heart, and the other is Al Davis. That's Al Davis. That's Mark's dad. All right. Um, Al Davis. If I was, uh, Don, if I was going to do um, cantankerous, is that one way to put him? Iconoclastic? Is that the word we usually trot out for a man? Both are good. Yeah. Um, Cranky. Uh, Used to getting his own way as well. A little bit of Sheldon Adelson in him too. Mm -hmm. Um, And an outlier. Certainly not a guy that all of the other NFL owners um, liked to hang around with. He was um, somebody who was not afraid to uh, spit in the eye of the commissioner and his fellow owners uh, as owner of the Oakland Raiders and LA Raiders. As football people, I will say that I think Holly and I will always ride for Al Davis in this sense. Uh, He liked the long ball. He's going to throw the go ball every single time. Uh, Started out as a coach, an unusual ownership saga in that this man actually coached the game and sort of never stopped coaching the game because in his tenure as owner at the Raiders, occasionally there was a phone call from the owner's booth that would come down with some gentle suggestions for the coach about what the next play should be. It was usually throwing deep. It's usually what happened. Um, The sum that he purchased his initial stake in the Raiders for will blow your mind $159,000 in 1967 that's the amount of money it took all right like a pretty healthy down payment on a house in a major metropolitan area now that's what we're talking about in terms of getting a 10 percent share of the Raiders in 67 he'd hire John Madden he would increase the profile of the Oakland Raiders he would lead them to great success and then in 1972 He decided to pull what I have in my notes as, and I'm going to read this verbatim, um, pull some Game of Thrones shit. That's (laughs) what I have this as. He had a majority partner, F. Wayne Valley, and he left to attend the 1972 Olympic Games while he was at the completely incident-free and definitely not traumatic 1972 Games. Al Davis uh, met with Edward Wait, he's in Munich when this goes down? That's correct. Okay. (laughs) Yeah. Cool. He's he's in Munich. That's a that's a different podcast. All right. That's a very different podcast. But while this is happening, Al strikes. And Al, along with uh another partner, Edward McGaw, uh one of the other Raiders partners, signed himself to a 20-year contract. A 20-year contract to be the managing general partner of the Raiders, this uh sidelined. F. Wayne Valley eventually bought out and Davis dug in like a tick into the Raiders franchise, uh, increasing his power, aggregating his sort of 
you know, well of supporters and building the franchise and eventually owned 67% of an NFL franchise off of uh, the price of, I think, a used Lexus LFA. That's that's really what he ended up getting a 67% shot at a billion dollar franchise. The image on the right is Kenny Stabler driving a powerboat. I just included that because he is the Oakland Raiders greatest quarterback of all time. And also because if you can put a photo of Kenny Stabler after what I am guessing is at least six beers driving a powerboat, you do it. You do it every single time. Um, Al was... Al was a complex dude because he was, yes, combative. Yes, he did have legal battles with the Raiders, but he was also a, a person who would, you know, pay for Paul McGuire to go get heart surgery um, because they knew each other 30 years prior playing football together. He was the kind of dude who, yeah, he was a monarch of sorts. He was a dictator, but he was also the first person to hire, let's see, a a latino coach an african-american head coach he was the first person to put a woman in the front office uh just a guy who will here for a second sure i think the word you want here is not but but and and yes like i don't think these things necessarily push back against one another i think they add up to the totality of uh the kind of person that we usually push away in eulogies as complicated well, and that's another that's... reason why, as I said before, he's an outlier, right? He was an mm-hmm. outlier because none of the other NFL owners were doing any of these things. He was a trailblazer. He was willing to hire uh, a Hispanic head coach and a black head coach. And yeah, he did He did all these things that the other NFL owners were not going to do uh, in, unless they were forced to do it or unless they were shamed to do it. Al Davis did it. Yes. Also, very fond of packing up the entire franchise if he didn't get what he wanted which he did a couple of times back and forth from Oakland to Los Angeles. He died at the age of 82 and left 47% 47 of an NFL franchise, a billion-dollar endeavor, to his widow, Carol, and to this man. That is correct. I have three images here. The one on the left is his van. That's if you want to know everything that you need to say, Tim Cowan and a wonderful ESPN.com profile, ESPN the Mag profile of Mark Davis told us about the van that is, yeah, yeah, no, no, I can see. You, you all need to put your clothes back on. Stop licking the screen. It it it's, looks like he might have a DVD player in there, man. I don't look there's, <laughs> there's some headroom in the back. <clears throat> Holly, not a Sorry. DVD player, a video cassette recorder. Better. Better. That is a 1997 Dodge Caravan with the Mark III conversion unit. You might be squinting at the license plate. It says R-H-H-E-R-S on it. That is Raiders, if you didn't read it. And is it parked in the parking lot of a P.F. Chang's? Yes. Yes, Don. That is in the parking lot of the fine, publicly accessible, non-exclusive P.F. Chang's chain restaurant. Which is where Mark Davis conducts, still to this day, most of the business of the Las Vegas Raiders. That's correct. Yeah. I love that. I love that fact. And this, to the right. That's his Ricks. I mm -hmm. love this. To the right is the model of phone that he was using as recently as, I believe, 2016. Maybe to this day, who can say? That is. That 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 little emoticon kind of looks like him. 
It does kind of look like him. You think that's you think that's custom? <laughs> I hope so. He's had he's had a phone with a Las Vegas number in it since I believe 1997 because they didn't charge for roaming. That was <laughs> that's why he had it. It that's wasn't just, some grand that's just smart. It wasn't some grand plan. That's why I love this man. Let me flash my dad chops here. That's just sensible. (laughs) It was. Somebody asked him, oh, how long have you been planning this? And he's like, no, no, no. They had free roaming. Like Nevada and Vegas, they, you know, you had free roaming. You didn't have to pay for it. So that's why I had a Vegas number, man. Um, There's yet more to this man who, yeah, if you'll look, we have the OG Mark Davis haircut. Something he did on purpose and traveled to get from the same barber for at least 30 years at least has anybody ever talked to the barber <laughs> we need to have so many like questions. that's that's an artistic collaboration that deserves to be plumbed <laughs> whose idea was this maybe the question is do we now talk to the barber and does the barber shave his head now because i bet he's like no nah, i trust this guy i really trust him mm. mark davis's tastes continued next slide this is Mark Davis's house. This is a rendering of what Mark what become Mark Davis's home in Las Vegas. There is a slide that will help, I guess, partially explain what this is because I don't know. Um, if you had to look at this Don, this image, and say, "What is this?" with sight unseen, that doesn't look like a home to me. What what is that? It looks like a villain's lair in some crazy movie, right? Mm hmm. Mm hmm. I think that's fair. Holly, you have a suggestion for what that could be? Uh, what's the name of that real weird broke down dystopian Transformers convention facility that used to be in Atlanta? The one that oh, literally the Om- rusted the one that literally rusted open? The old Omni. The yeah. Old Omni. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm. Not the hotel, but uh the this old convention like- center. Yeah, this looks like son of the Omni, right? Yeah. This looks like a vacation- It looks like if the Batmobile transformed into a building. Right. This this looks like a vacation home in Zardoz. This looks like some kind of alien convention center. This is the Las Vegas Raiders facility. You'll notice these are the same image. They are the same basic curves, same colors. Mark Davis wants to go to the facility and then come home and sleep in the facility. That's <laughs> what we're talking about here. This is the this is the football owner's equivalent of a race car bed. That's what he is talking about. See, this looks it, like this one looks like it's got the Disney monorail or the Epcot monorail running through the middle of it. It does. Oh, yeah. It does. Yep. It, I appreciate that that the Raiders are the only ones who moved somewhere and built something that looks like the sci-fi version of that place. It looks Wait, like I'm sorry, local- I'm not playing dumb. I just realized this is the Raiders facility now and not in Oakland. Yeah. Because it says Las Vegas on the building. Uh, I'm you- a professional, I'm not an investigative journalist, but now this wow. is wow. So that yeah. got built this that got built this decade. That's correct. That's right. Amazing. So the building, so the Las Vegas Raiders building copied Mark Davis's house, right? Which is yeah. even weirder. <laughs> that so I, the house came first. Okay. Not the, you'd think it was the other way around, right? Right. But, right. Yeah. So the new facility in Las Vegas was a copycat. He told the architect, "Do what. Look at my house. Now make that for my office. That's that's how it worked. Okay. Wherever I'm yeah. sleeping, I want to be able to walk to the bathroom without really waking up. Yeah, Lo- make it Logan's Run, but a football facility. That's what we're looking at here. I kind of respect it, to be honest. This is clearly the aesthetic sense of a man who did not really have a job or own anything until he was 57 years old. I." 
<laughs> know that Mark Davis worked in the Raiders facility, worked um, with the Raiders on their merch shop, which by all accounts was very successful. Uh, an entire lifetime of consuming West Coast rap has told me this because they're all wearing Raiders gear. So good job, Mark. Um, he did have one tiff with his dad, um, which was Mark decided at one point that he was going to get a job and represent Cliff Branch, a wide receiver for the Raiders in negotiations with the Raiders. Mark just kind of thought he could do that and then come home and eat dinner with Al. That was not what Al did. Al Al kicked him out of the house for a while after he <laughs> represented him. And to Mark's credit, by the way, did very well. Got a nice long contract for Cliff Branch that, that worked effectively as an annuity. So good job for him in an era before a whole lot of success uh, in contractual negotiations with owners for NFL players. Mark Davis managed to actually do that. So not an entirely empty resume for the dude. Next slide. Okay, again, I sometimes include photos because um, they're emotionally important to me. At the top is not. The top is one of our main characters. That is the Las Vegas Convention Center. 2.5 million square feet of show floor. Host monster events like Comdex's Spiritual Air, CES, where pretty much every piece of glamorous technology is unveiled. Then it's also been expanded three times since then. So Don is right. Massive business. The convention business is huge to las vegas and huge it also huge, huge to las vegas and yes and as we said huge to adelson absolutely massive for sheldon adelson um you are looking at sheldon adelson's competition because this is owned by the las vegas convention and visitors authority for the lvcc alone for this building you're looking at that kind of looks like it has a sort of stingray sleeping on top of it or some kind of like art deco octopus that is $300 million a year of revenue. That building alone, it doesn't include all the runoff revenue. It's big for hotels, it's big for restaurants, it's big for the service industry, which the service industry in Las Vegas is effectively the industry in town, all right? This is his competition. It's the primary competition for the Sands Convention Center and then for the expansion of the Venetian and the Palazzo Convention Center, which are all owned by Sheldon Adelson. And by this point in his life, Adelson is making more money than God off the Macau casinos alone. But that's not important. Past a certain point in net worth, it's not about the money. All right. It's about whether you're screwing me, right? Or whether I'm getting my bit. Are you trying to take my stuff? And the LVCC, in Sheldon Adelson's mind, is a public good that is competing against him, a lone noble private investor and something's about to happen that's going to get him really really irritated about the convention center and the chunk of business that it is theoretically competing for and taking away from him below that by the way is the panda express on the strip i just included that because that is my lucky go-to in las vegas i've stopped every losing streak i've ever had by eating there it saved me on multiple occasions. I've never eaten at that Panda Express and then gone and not won money afterwards. Did I come out ahead? That's not relevant to this discussion, but I'm glad you asked. Next slide. Readers, I'd also like to warn you here at this time in the interest of healthy gambling practices that Spencer believes genuinely and to a degree that I find frightening that the key to winning at roulette is to have a positive attitude. It's correct. 
Right. I'm totally just, right. Just wanted to get a little context there. And, Don, are and, you are, are and you a it, roulette guy? I, I do play roulette and always regret it. Um, mm -hmm. You know, it's the silliest game, right, on the strip. Well, the slots are the worst, but roulette is right up there. I mean, just it's just dumb. I'm making fun of Spencer, but here's the problem. I've never seen him lose at roulette, ever. Really? It's so the positive it's, attitude. It's upsetting. The yeah. positive attitude policy works. He might be right. And that's, I, I'm honestly not sure which scenario is more upsetting. Lifetime, I'm still positive. I had a bad trip last time for the draft last year. But um, honestly, my attitude wasn't great. I think I needed to commit a little bit more. That's what I'm doing wrong, Spencer, when I'm at a roulette table. I'm grim. Right. I, I, I'm expecting to lose and I do. So I'm doing it all wrong. Yeah. You just need to go ahead, open yourself, like put, put your sails in the wind. And let you know, take put Get the compass Tennessee in your pocket. Get that Tennessee football mindset out of your out of your head. That's right. <laughs> I can't really do that anymore, can I? Oh, <sighs> um, I gotta get a new bit. So, um, this is a problem that we're looking at here. This is an engineering problem, actually, a public sanitation problem. Don, this is Oakland Coliseum. All right, I love Oakland Coliseum. It's a lot of great history there fantastic sporting venue but it's got one problem and the problem is that uh, it has a nagging sewage leak problem at one point in 2013 after a series of sewage leaks at the stadium food service had to be halted due to a real concern for contamination from e coli in the kitchen i wanted to ask you this you're a person who's done a lot of reporting on the nfl when we get to we need a new stadium do we really even, do you think the average person knows who we're talking about in terms of, well, they're negotiating with the city? Like, who is that? How do these things go? And and how real are they? Before we get into the like back and forth here between Oakland and Davis, we're not going to get super granular about it, but this generally, right? What's the city looking for? Is the owner always looking to move? Like, how, how does that go? Oh, it's always follows the same script. There's always, uh, I mean, it's not always a, a stadium that's an open sewer like mm -hmm. right? But no, but it's it, it follows the same script in the sense that there's always an owner that wants to trade up. The stadium is never good enough, and to get public money, it's always a sweepstakes to try to uh, fleece as much public money from some state legislature as possible there's always got to be stalking horses there's always got to be uh, other places that will open up the coffers even greater in other places and always a threat to move the franchise from one place to the other it's the playbook it's worked brilliantly for decades um and the nfl plays it to a t and knows that the biggest fear in the in in the in the hearts of anybody who is a public figure is, hey, I'm taking my NFL team somewhere else unless you pony up. It works. Yeah. And Oakland's giving the Raiders a big, big chit here by having a stadium where, uh, yeah, sewage, open <laughs> sewer conditions are a problem. So as if an NFL owner needed more ammunition for their stalking horse, Oakland's handing it to them here. That's right. Having, you know, flowing open sewage into the dugout of a multi-purpose stadium, which a lot of NFL owners don't like anyway, right? A lot of them want a dedicated football stadium instead of this kind of municipally owned multi-purpose stadium where famously, what do we always see? If we see a Raiders game from any time before their move to Las Vegas, you see 
half of a baseball diamond. You just see a baseball diamond right there on the field and they're running across it on the 30 yard line. So um, negotiations with the city of Oakland, when this happens, they go nowhere while Davis starts to flirt with moving the Raiders back to Los Angeles. Um, this is ancient history for anyone who has an internet uh, attention span. But if you'll remember at one point, the Rams, Chargers, and Raiders were all going to have kind of a weird football polycule in Los Angeles. They were going to all sort of see if they could make it work living in the same city. That fell through. And that fell through in part for the Raiders because of one Jerry Jones. Isn't that correct? That is correct. Jerry Jones uh, put all his chips on Stan Kroenke, the owner of the, the, the then St. Louis Rams, uh, and who can write a check, unlike Mark Davis, uh, the owner of the Raiders, or Dean Spanos, the owner of the then San Diego Chargers. Kroenke can write a check for a new stadium. So surprise, surprise, Jerry sided with the guy with the most money. And in the sweepstakes for Los Angeles, uh, Mark Davis and Dean Spanos, the two guys who can't write a check for a stadium, combined uh, with a proposal for their own stadium uh, and and Stan Kroenke won basically because Jerry Jones made it happen. So remember that Jerry Jerry at this point is down one to Mark in terms of favors among the gentlemen's club of NFL owners. And what year is this? Uh, this would be twenty twenty sixteen, I believe. Twenty sixteen, yes. Yeah. Uh, which really comes down to like one week. There's like one week in 2016 where it's like maybe all three are there, and then. NFL put says Ixnay real fast. So the Raiders yeah, and, and, and Kroenke built uh, SoFi Stadium and then uh, Spanos and the Chargers moved from San Diego and basically were tenants. And Mark Davis was on the outside looking in and said in our story, I finished third in a three horse race. Yes. So at this point, by the way, Mark Davis has not flipped the script. He is third in a three horse race. He would be fourth in a four horse race. He is still the poor man among NFL owners looking for a place to take this franchise. Those places, pretty limited number of spots where they could land by population and market. Um, one of those is San Antonio. That falls through thanks to, again, Jerry Jones and the Texans owner, Bob McNair, both objecting to this because they're going to veto any expansion into their territory automatically. The only other alternative for Davis, even though it does not compare population-wise, but certainly in the American imagination, is Las Vegas. But this has been an impossibility for the NFL for years, years, decades, because gambling. Gambling and the NFL. Don, that that's Paul Horning on the cover of Sports Illustrated. Paul Horning, former Notre Dame quarterback and Green Bay Packers legend, who was suspended for gambling, along with Alex Karras. Back in 1962, gambling for the young league represented an existential threat to the young league's legitimacy. This is something that the NFL security office is obsessed with, correct? Oh, yeah, absolutely obsessed with. And and as recently as 2013 or 2014, when there was that fantasy convention in Vegas, remember that Tony Romo went to? Mm -hmm. They were still the NFL was still upset about it then that recently. You know, Roger Goodell is on the record repeatedly over and over saying, you know, gambling bad, even though it turbocharges and has since the beginning of time fans interest in the game. And yet they wanted nothing to do with it. 
This is also on the right, Jerry Jones, who Jerry Jones pivotal again here because Jerry Jones, as an investor in DraftKings, is one of the people who is responsible for softening the NFL's bristling at anything resembling sports gambling. Another one is Robert Kraft, the owner of the Patriots. But for our purposes, old Double J there, old Double J is going to stay important here. Okay. Um, I've also included. Can I jump in? Sure, please. I have a philosophical question for both of you. Mm -hmm. Or unless there's an actual answer. Was the NFL's opposition to gambling, uh, was it more of a moral opposition or a, well, if we allow gambling, it's not like we can control it, so we don't want it? That's a good, that's a good I think question. the second part of it was a big part of it. Uh, there was no way to make money off of it. Right. Uh, and it wasn't until there was a way to make money off of it in 2018 when the Supreme Court, you know, opened up the floodgates. And now we have, what, 35 states, I think, where it's legal to place a bet uh, on sports around the country. Um, and it keeps going up every other week. Uh, as soon as that happened, a switch got thrown. I remember speaking to owners literally the week of the Supreme Court decision in 2018. And I could hear the champagne glasses, you know, <laughs> clinking in the background. They were thrilled and happy because they knew it was another massive uh, revenue jump for the league sponsorships, uh, you know, you name it. And Jerry Jones and Robert Kraft, uh, Spencer, as you pointed out, um, they were very early seed investors in DraftKings long before sports betting became legal in the United States. Uh, Jerry and uh, Robert Kraft had uh, money put in, seed money put into DraftKings. That's always funny to me, and I, I guess I kind of knew the answer to that, but I the the case that they always used to mount against gambling and against gamblers before this decision was always such a moralistic one uh, and a, a capital V values-based one. And anyway, life's funny. It was always about the integrity of the game. That was always Roger Goodell's favorite phrase, that mm -hmm. gambling would potentially undermine the integrity of the game. You have not heard him say that since 2018. Yeah, he's he's doing the full Bill Hancock. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I've always felt this way. It's just that circumstances have changed. Mm. That's that's yes. our stance. Um, I include this slide to show NFL legend and star of Webster and Blazing Saddles, Alex Karras, here with um with Dick the Bruiser, legendary Detroit wrestler. Alex Karras suspended for a year, decided that one way he was going to make up the salary he was losing during the year of suspension was by participating in a professor professional wrestling match. He lost by submission to Dick the Bruiser, um, but he made 17 grand and made his whole salary back in a night. <laughs> Just my favorite little diversion here. That's right. This the punishment, Spencer, the the one year uh suspension, yeah, that, that that's okay. That's not a problem. The real punishment was. Dick the Bruiser beat the hell out of you one night. That's the we'll punishment. Fight a guy named Dick the Bruiser. Dick the Bruiser. I believe, by the way, that that fight, the match, was pre was preceded by, and the match came out of an actual real life fight between Karis and Dick the Bruiser in a bar. <laughs> She's Again. <quite> a <laughs> oh, he oh. We got to return you. Here's here's a fun thought exercise. We got to return you to the NFL for your own safety. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> so you can make less money for more punishment. <laughs> um, this is a photo of two guys just cheesing it up 
two two winners here, Sheldon Adelson and Mark Davis. This image, uh, pretty innocuous the way we're looking here. Uh, on January 29th, 2016, the Sands corporate account just tweeted this out. Like, hey, look, two buddies. And this made everybody in NFL ownership and in Las Vegas completely flip out. Because <laughs> that man on the right is uh, wealthy off of gaming and gambling. All right. And also the convention business, which I do want you to remember. And that man on the left, that's an NFL owner without money. This is a pretty, this is a pretty simple equation you're looking at here. Um, These are two very unlikely friends, right? <laughs> These are not two people you would ever see no. jumping around together. Yeah. Yeah. The guy on the left eats and conducts business at PF Chang's like it's his office. And the guy on the right is trying to shape international policy in his spare time when he's not hanging out with the leaders of the People's Republic of China. That's that's the goal, yes. the divide that we have here, okay? The other way I would put it, Spencer, is I would say that the guy on the left with the bowl cut is the least powerful owner yep. in the NFL, and the guy on the right is the most powerful man in Nevada and maybe in the country. I'd put it that way, too. It's about power. Very little power on the left, a lot of power on the right. Yes, one of the wealthiest men in the world. Yes. On the right, someone who can get anyone's number and make a number that they can't resist if we're making a deal. And this, this looked like from the outside and the quote that you have in the article that you wrote with Seth Wickersham, which I highly recommend to everybody. Of course, we're going to put it in the notes. This is, this is one of my favorite things that's ever appeared on ESPN.com just for the TikTok of something unexpected happening in the midst of so many things that should have gone the other way. The quote is that Mark Davis would get rolled in negotiations because <laughs> that's a shark. That man right there, that man, that's a serious cold killer of a negotiator. Fair by all the counts. All right. But tough as hell. He was going to get his piece. This is a guy who was going to get his stake in whatever he did. And with Mark Davis on the other end of the negotiating table, this on paper is a blowout. Absolutely. Another word that was used to describe Mark Davis on our story is a boob. That was somebody who has known him his entire life. He's a boob. That's the That's a real, term. real throwback descriptor. Yeah. That's up there yeah. with bum. Yes, it is up there with bum for sure. This, um, this is another piece of beautiful, pure Nevada. I want everybody to know this is the 65 acres of prime Las Vegas. Um, it's across from Mandalay Bay. And at one point in this history, it was supposed to be a trailer park. And just imagine now a trailer park sitting in the middle of the strip and how long it would take for the entire place to be bought out. I'm guessing 15 minutes easy for this slice of real estate. It was also supposed to be a wet and wild at one point. If you don't remember wet and wild, it was uh, a, a water park that was uh, chained out of Kissimmee. Florida and wet and wild in Las Vegas. I cannot imagine the amount of chlorine that would be necessary to purify the water of people coming straight out of casino, casino jaunts and into the waters of a wet and wild. It would qualify as chemical warfare for anybody downwind is what I imagine. This, this is the piece of real estate that they are looking at for a stadium and where eventually you will see the Raiders build their home in Las Vegas. 
Adelson tries to get a piece of the Raiders in the ex- in exchange in these negotiations because, and I think very fairly says, if I'm going to go to all of this trouble to move heaven and earth to get the franchise, you got to give me a piece. Davis says no, and the league backs him up because they don't want a casino owner in their ranks, even though Adelson notes quite accurately, gambling drives a tremendous amount of interest around the NFL and its growth. Like Sheldon Adelson makes some really, really good points about why are you shying away from me? I'm you. I am I am your partner already. You just don't acknowledge it publicly. Nonetheless, Adelson guarantees a deal to get this done. All right. And by that, I mean he takes a new hotel tax, all right, that is going to uh come out of this massive vein of money that's just streaming through Las Vegas. He's going to take the tax. He's going to get everybody in Carson City who is a uh, <clears throat> strongly influenced by Adelson's uh, beliefs, policies, and interests. And they're going to take this around $750 million. And that has to be the number, by the way. Adelson pulls that out of thin air and says, it needs to be 750 mil of this hotel tax money or I'm out, not a penny less. And Adelson has so much pull that he gets it. Carson City approves this for the construction of a new stadium on this land and then mark davis personally promises the governor before the governor signs it and says i will do everything to get the team to las vegas we have a date friday december 2nd 2016 the league's owners meet in new york to discuss the proposals one of these proposals includes adelson throwing in money for the raiders another one does not And when asked if they could do the deal without Adelson, a guy from Goldman Sachs named Greg Carey says, yeah, you know, I do stadium financing and it would be better with Adelson, but, uh, but it's doable without him. And that, that sets off an entire chain of events here. Adelson hears this, he flips the hell out. All right. And I think justifiably, right? Like he's doing all this work. He's going to get a piece of an NFL franchise. And all of a sudden Goldman Sachs is stepping in and saying, well, you know, there's a way to do it without him. Yeah, and 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 it's it's a colossal double cross, right, Spencer? Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, the only reason the seven hundred fifty million dollars was gleaned, as you said, in Carson City, was because of Sheldon Adelson. Mark, he's expecting to be partners with Mark Davis in the mm-hmm. Raiders. He wants a piece of an NFL team, and suddenly, I got a Goldman Sachs person emerges and says, "Oh no, 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 we can finance this. You don't need that free money." for from Sheldon Adelson for part of the team. You'll take the free money for the stadium, but you don't need the free money for the team. So Mark Davis says, I'd rather be in hock to Goldman Sachs than be a partner with Sheldon Adelson. He reads the room smartly. Do we know the Goldman Sachs person who set all this in motion? In the article, he identifies a guy named Greg Carey who handles stadium financing. He's like Goldman stadium financing guy. I'm just yeah. curious. Uh, I'm just, I'm kind of curious about what happens to Greg down the line. Uh-huh. Well, <laughs> that's a good question, Holly. <laughs> Sheldon Sheldon has a discussion with Goldman and says, "Don't be the reason I never do business with Goldman Sachs again." Um, again, I remind you, this is a man who's making like uh, tens of million dollars an hour out of his casinos and properties around the world. By the time he's hit this point in his life. Goldman would definitely want a piece of that money. 
I mean, I've the, seen, I've watched too much Succession, but you're telling me literally a guy named Greg uh, put, this, put the initial ice spike in this thing. That's never amazing. Ask, man, never ask a quant if something's possible, right? Never perfect, ask, just perfect casting by, I don't know, God there. Never, never ask the guy with the spreadsheet if it's possible, okay? Because you know what he's not seeing on that spreadsheet? A big, angry, rich guy. That's what mm -hmm. he's not seeing. He's just seeing numbers. He's not going, oh, who's this going to piss off? Anger isn't on the spreadsheet right? Um, neither are politics. He's just saying, yeah, well, sure, then we can do it. So Adelson hears this, and I think justifiably flips the hell out. He, he threatens to not only sink the deal, but to never bank with Goldman again. Uh, there's a December 14th meal uh, meeting uh, regarding an Oakland deal for a team. That doesn't go anywhere. On January uh, 30th and 31st, 2017, Adelson and Goldman pull out of the deal. Okay, so Goldman takes a look at it and goes, We've discussed things with Mr. Adelson, and we believe that um, his business is very important to us. So we're just going to go ahead and let Mark uh, twist in the wind over here because uh, this guy's worth $35 billion and you're not. And uh, the Las Vegas Stadium Authority uh, receives a offer from Dave or a proposal from Davis that doesn't even mention Adelson. The Raiders do this uh, per the article while Davis is sitting in Adelson's office. So ah! Davis is sitting there. Talking with Sheldon Adelson while they're sliding the proposal of betrayal across the table, across town. So the Raiders are in limbo, right? Raiders aren't anywhere at this point, right? The Raiders are stuck. Mark Davis has the governor of Nevada on the hook because he said he'd do everything that he could in order to move the team there. And while true, at this moment, we are short on this. This is the darkest hour. Some sane people, some very smart observers of the league believe the Raiders are trying to tank their own deal, which in fairness would be the most Oakland LA Raiders thing ever. And in this dark hour of chaos and despair, who can salvage this deal? Next slide. That's Carson City, by the way. A very small capital for Nevada. Yeah. Like, that's, yeah. that's like a country a, club. Yeah, it looks like honestly, kind of looks like a New England middle school. Like, just, you know, this looks like a TV middle school. This is the NFL offices. I just wanted to include this slide because they have a table. That they have desk a desk. Is amazing. Yeah. The Chrome desk with the football. That's amazing. And yes, that's that's Adelson again, pitching a fit, wearing his very silly hat. This is the man who's going to save the deal. I chose the cockiest picture of Jerry Jones I could find with the shades, gesturing confidently. This is where Don... Gerald Wayne's Jones makes this happen and he doesn't make it happen in a straight line. There's a, there's some fumbling. There's a couple of false starts, but this man, this man somehow pulls this deal off. How? That's a great question. He, he, he basically figures out how to get financing and money to where Sheldon Allison was. And there was a vacuum. He figures out the way to put the money there and, and make the deal work. Yeah, $850 million in credit for cost overruns from Bank, America, Bank of America alone. And though the terms are hefty, we'll never take out a loan bigger than the loan that Mark Davis took out for this. But that's right. And, and the NFL hates when owners take on a ton of debt. Uh, you know, we're seeing that with Dan Snyder right now as well. And yet, it didn't matter because Jerry mm -hmm. vouched for Mark Davis and and for really one of the more sentimental reasons. And, you know, Jerry is very, very sentimental. 
He, you know, he talks about his dad. He missed up in tears. His father was a grocer in North Little Rock. Uh, he loved Al Davis. And so he did this in part because it was a power move. And anytime Jerry could do a power move, he's going to do it. He, he also realized that the Oakland Raiders are worth a lot more money if they're the Las Vegas Raiders and the valuation was going to double, which it did. But he did it partly for that reason. But he also did it for a very sentimental reason. He loved Al Davis. He knew Mark Davis since he was a little kid, just hanging around owners' meetings. Uh, he knew that a lot of the fellow owners laughed at Mark Davis, underestimated Mark Davis, just the way Jerry Jones, by the way, was underestimated, believe it or not, when he first showed up in 1989 at these owners' meetings. And so he took care of him. He took care of it, and he made sure Bank of America was going to come to the table and make up that gap, make up the money basically that Sheldon Adelson was going to write in a check for this yeah. deal and Bank of America showed up and came to the rescue. Bank of America is one of the major sponsors of the Dallas Cowboys. They do a ton of business across the league, and they came to the rescue at Jerry Jones's behest. Two things about this I love. There's a very relatable moment where they're going over the loan terms with Mark Davis, and it sounds exactly like the moment when you're buying a house, and you go, ooh, that number sounds pretty big, and they're like, well, that's manageable. It's not fun, but you can manage it. <laughs> Mark Davis is like, I don't know, Uncle Jerry. How's the sound? He's like, yeah, go ahead and do it. Sign it. It's just money. Uh, and then the other thing I love about this, Jerry Jones carries one credit card. Bank of America's credit card. One. Yep. That's right. No Amer no black American Express for Jerry Jones. Really? Just a bank. Yep. Yeah. I know, I know this because I asked him. <laughs> I asked him in the 2014. Bank of America in his pocket. He has a Bank of America credit card in his pocket. He also usually carries a lot of cash, too. Maybe yeah, I should say that. Somebody will roll them. But uh, <laughs> he, he, he deals in cash more than he does with a credit card. Um, this is also a point I want to make. On one side of this was Sheldon Adelson. On the other side was Bank of America. That's We're, we're talking equivalent financial muscle in terms of this deal, right? Yes. Like, but both of them were like, we will write a check. One was a guy and the other is Bank of America. Yeah. And and also, Spencer, the other thing that's just that fascinated me about the story when we did it is, again, Mark Davis turned down. It's not free money because he's got to give up part of his franchise. Right. So he's got to give up part of the Raiders value to Sheldon Adelson. But he turned that down and would much rather have a massive mortgage to Bank of America. And there's all sorts of questions whether he was going to be able to make good on that note. And yet, because Sheldon Adelson was, for all the reasons you've said earlier, you know, connected to gambling, was still the face of gambling, it was still a taboo subject for the NFL. We were still a you know, year and a half away from that Supreme Court decision, that landmark decision. And also, People didn't want, owners didn't want Adelson in their club. He was going to immediately be the 800-pound gorilla. He was going to be the most wealthy of all the owners. You know, Jerry's worth at the time, I don't know, six or $7 billion mm -hmm. in 2017. You know, Adelson's worth five times that amount. And so they like wealthy people, but that wealthy and connected to gambling, that taboo subject, they didn't want Adelson around, most of the owners. And so- that's why Jerry did what he did. The rich guy that other rich guys are afraid of. That's yeah. fascinating. One yes. more note here, and I don't want it to go unmentioned. The man in the shades right here, old Double J, looking confident. Uh, the man uh, who will happily pour you a Johnny Walker and tell you a story. This gentleman here, 
occasionally likes to have a good time, occasionally likes to party, and he sometimes likes to do it in Las Vegas. Holly, I have included this just for you, the massive video screen in Jerry World. Do you know the inspiration for it? Fremont Street. Better. Better. The man. Good guess. Look- yeah. The man you are looking at here, he has a fondness for a certain Canadian artiste, a singer <gasps> who did a Still stand. the one. Celine. That's correct. This man loves Celine Dion, and he loves Celine Dion's show in I, Las Vegas. Just and one of the many things that Jerry and I have in common. The big video screens at Celine Dion's show were part of the inspiration for the massive video boards that you see in Arlington. Which, I, to folks listening at home, it may look stupid on TV. I I deeply, awesome. re- I deeply <laughs> regret to inform you that they're awesome in person. It brings me no pleasure to report this. And it was at Caesar's Palace where that massive screen for Celine was where Jerry saw it and had that inspiration. So, yeah, Jerry Jerry. loves Vegas. He loves the win. He loves Lavo, that nightclub. Mm -hmm. Uh, He likes the Rat Pack Vegas. He he sees himself as from that era when he's there and he's out there all the time. So he, he wanted an NFL franchise in L.A. where Jerry was born. And he wanted an NFL franchise in Vegas. This is going back before either one of those things happened permanently and they both happened basically because Jerry pulled the right levers. In some ways he can be so cool. <laughs> I just don't know. He'll be like, that's cool as hell, Jerry. Um, Next slide. So Jerry pulls it off. The money secured the Raiders on Monday, March 27th, 2017. Are approved by NFL owners to move to Las Vegas by a 31 to 1 margin. The one nay on this being the dissenting voice of Stephen Ross of the Dolphins, um, who, like the Miami Dolphins, doesn't matter. No one cares. <laughs> Raiders are going in. Raiders are going anyway. And the Raiders eventually moved to Las Vegas. What you are looking at here is their stadium that kind of looks like if a stormtrooper had a child with a Roomba. And uh, ironically, being thanked in memoriam since he passed on January 11th, 2021 is Sheldon Adelson, the big baddie from the start of the story who got screwed out of a portion of an NFL franchise. He thought he was going to be able to purchase by a boob, a fool, a man with a dull, a dull child's haircut, a guy in a Mark three conversion van who was the poorest NFL owner. And that sign's not wrong because they are in Las Vegas because of Sheldon Adelson and because Adelson didn't come away empty-handed. Remember, this was all started with the wrath of convention competition because that money that he got for the stadium, it stayed there. He got an edge on the Las Vegas Convention Center. So in in a word, he kind of got some of what he wanted here. Not all. But he kind of got some of what he wanted. No, that's a that's a really good point. That he was he the big incentive for him was to move that money to the stadium away from the rival convention center, mm-hmm. and it stayed there. So he did get a kind of small victory. And you know, he was gonna make an even bigger issue out of this, guys. Um, and then when he would walk around town, people were thanking him, thanking him for his role in bringing the NFL to Vegas. And he sort of liked that. And as you said. He had so much money. He didn't care about that. He saw this as a legacy enhancing move, even though he got screwed by Mark Davis. And that's the word that he used. He used worse words than that. uh, He still saw the silver lining in this thing that 
the convention center that was a rival of his had less money to compete against them and that people were giving him credit for bringing the uh, great NFL to his hometown. Well, he, he did play a part. He did. Just, just, a massive in, part. just in which in which direction of momentum. I that's one thing I do love about this story, because the final gesture here is Mark Davis thanking him repeatedly. Like a diplomat would, like a Talleyrand in action, right? Playing the diplomacy perfectly, saying thank you to the vision of Sheldon Adelson, without whom none of this would be possible, which is true in such a more complex way than we knew an hour ago before we started discussing this. Don, I, I love I love your shit, man. And thank you for coming on and, and talking with this. This was so much fun. 